0: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. This is your co-host, Posh. We've got a new episode for you today, and we're excited that you made it here. Before we get going, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star rating, and then subscribe to the newsletter. Get some new updates from us, some exclusive content, things that nobody else has. And oh, one more thing. Enjoy the show. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Posh. I'm Pat. And we are so excited to be with Dr. Howard Murad today. He is the founder of Murad, uh, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard of and you've seen on uh, several shelves in the past two, three decades. Um, And we're excited to share Dr. Murad's story today and hear from him about his personal story and how he got his entrepreneurial journey going. So, Dr. Murad, thank you for joining us today. So glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start from, uh, you know, the early days. I know you were uh, born in Iraq, in the Middle East. Uh, Correct. Take us through that journey a little bit.
1: Well, actually, my family, uh, um, for generations, have lived in Iraq. And uh, there was a time in the mid-40s, 1940s, where um, there was a lot of problems and um and religious problems and things like that and we were very fortunate to be able to have the ability to come to the united states um, it was a challenging uh, situation for us but we were able to leave uh, a dangerous place and come to the safe haven of the united states and if i can thank anything i would thank my ability to have traveled and lived in the United States. Had I had to stay in Iraq, I probably would have had a much different life.
2: So uh, when you came to the U.S., uh, around how old were you and, and what was like the first thing you did?
1: Well, I was seven years old. Um, and when I was in Iraq, I went to the French school, Alliance, and I learned a couple of words of English. And the only words I knew was give me your hand. I'm not sure why I learned that, but that's what I learned. <laughs> and uh, so we got off the plane and uh, my uncle uh, came and gre- greeted us with uh, some of my uh, cousins. And I said, give me your hands. I don't know what they thought, but <laughs> so we kind of started a conversation. And the one thing that was very interesting is the ability uh, to be- have a plastic mind when we're so young that I was able to pick up English in relatively a short period of time. There was no special class or special learning. They sent me immediately to the uh, second grade. And um, within a month or so, I was speaking English without an accent. My siblings, I'm the youngest of six, um, were older. The next sibling age was about 12. And she still has an accent. So you could tell she's from a foreign country. But I don't have one other than because I lived in New York, I probably have an a, a New York accent.
0: What were your parents involved with when they were in Iraq, and why did you end up you know choosing or why did they end up choosing to come to you know New York? Well,
1: my father um was a businessman he sold something called copra copra uh was in nutrition, which is just basically dried coconuts and um and that was something that he he imported from India, and he sold it in Iraq. So that was his business, and he was relatively successful. We had a nice home. We had some servants. And um, when we came to the United States, we had to leave everything behind us. So we arrived here relatively penniless. Fortunately, um, or maybe unfortunately, uh, my uncle was there to help us. And he supported us for a while and as a matter of fact, found a business for my father to go into. My father became a silent partner and he would be learning, basically selling um, material, you know, large amounts of material which people could make clothing from or whatever. Um, And uh, unfortunately, um, the partner cheated my father and we ended up penniless. We moved from a nice house into a tiny apartment, like 400 square feet, uh, 600 square feet, excuse me. And um, so we all lived in this little place, and um, we all found jobs. Even I, when I was eight years old, I was delivering newspapers. I was um, going next door and helping gardening, uh, things like that. Uh, after a while, when I got older, I was a pin boy. There were no machines in the bowling alleys, and I just set the pins at night. Um, there had different odd jobs uh, all along. Everybody worked in the family. Uh, and there were times when there really wasn't even enough to eat. You know, sometimes uh, all eight, um, eight of us would have one chicken and a whole lot of rice. And uh, that was a lot. And there were times even that wasn't enough. And I remember one time we had, all we had was onions. So my father said, We have a lot of onions and a lot of bread, so we'll eat and we'll be full. We we will at least still have food to eat. Um, And uh, so there were, you know, difficult, challenging times, but we picked ourselves up from our bootstraps and we managed to do everything. Um, My siblings, the older ones, uh, were able to go to college uh, at night and work during the day. My oldest brother who had finished pharmacy school in Iraq, uh, came back, and then he had to take two extra years in the United States and became a pharmacist. And gradually, he himself, after working many years, um, ended up uh, having his own pharmacy. Um, um, My next brother um, was into mathematics, and he uh, he ended up being an accountant. Two of my sisters had different jobs. One actually just went to secretary school and learned to type. And um, the other one actually worked in a clothing sales store. And she was able to um, get a job there. And eventually um, she got married and she and her husband opened some stores themselves. So little by little, every one of us uh, was able to become successful. And I, can't, I guess that's the story of the United States, the ability to um, come here and work hard and and make something of
2: yourself. Yeah, and it's like this classic sort of immigrant story that we hear often, where you know, where wherever you're, you're originally from, you know, you have this career and and you, you have this cr- you know great job, and you know, it could be in healthcare, it could be in legal field, it could be in anything. But once you immigrate to the U.S., a lot of people are sort of unable to find the sim- a similar job or career, and they have to to just adapt and, and figure it out. And so It's no, you know, it's it's no wonder that a lot of immigrants who come to the U.S. end up becoming entrepreneurs or or starting their own business or working in a small business. So that's why we see a lot of you know successful entrepreneurs in the U.S. You know, their parents were immigrants or their grandparents were immigrants, which is which is really which is really interesting. And so I guess for you, like as a young kid, were you did you have this like entrepreneurial bug bug in you? Like, did you foresee that one day, you know, you would start and run your own business, or was it just something that? I guess, you know, was that something that was in your mind?
1: Well, actually, I never had a roadmap, and necessarily, but somehow or other, what was imbued by from my parents to me, is that I would always be successful, didn't matter what it would be, it would be that. So I think that was really very important, Uh, when you have this um, parental love, and the parental um, love to allow you to become the best that you can be, regardless of what that happens to be. I think that's very important. So in a way, not having a roadmap was very good because my potential was unlimited. Um, and as a matter of fact, as I look through the the challenges that I had um, when I uh, went to college, I really thought I wanted to be an engineer. And one of the things about Learning from your failures, I think, is important for me. I learned that I wasn't destined to be an engineer. I couldn't do calculus and, and the math in, in college, even though that's what I thought I wanted to be. It was a time of Sputnik, and everybody was going into into that kind of field. And um, so I, um, I decided, my, my oldest brother was a pharmacist. He said, why don't you go to pharmacy school, and you'll You know, at least you'll have a job and you like science anyway. Um, I did go to pharmacy school, but in the back of my mind when I got there, I said, "Yeah, I should go to medical school. And here's another thing I think we have to learn is that we cannot accept that the idea of I probably can't do it. Because in my mind, I thought, well, all those other people in medical school, they've got to be much smarter than me. And so I probably won't be able to make it. So I'm not even going to try and little by little, I said, you know, what the heck? What do I have to lose? If I, if I don't make it, it's the same as not trying. But if I try and I make it, there's a chance I'll make it. Um, there was a little time where I had a, uh, I was studying finals with my uh, friend in pharmacy school. And his uncle uh, came by. He was a, a doctor in California. I was living in New York at the time and said how wonderful California was, it was brand new. That was way back in the 1960s. And um, medical was a great field. You guys should think about going to medical school. And um, he encouraged all of us to apply, and I applied, and I got in. And that was a a big challenge, and I think if I could help anybody, I said, I would say, allow the unique you to blossom. make your journey without a destination, words like that. And and over the years, I've created hundreds of what I call insights, understanding my life and understanding how I could help others with my insights, sayings, affirmations, some people call them. So the idea of being able to make the best of who you are is so important. And so many of us, all of us, have potentials beyond our wildest dreams if we only unlock that key and allow it to happen,
2: would you say the medical field was something that you were extremely passionate about when you started studying it in school, or was it was the reason for going to medical school um, more from maybe pressure from parents or society, or just that was like one of the paths to having a successful career
1: I don't know the uh, the answer to that question. All I can tell you is you know obviously. Uh, Becoming a doctor is something that anybody would want to aspire to, or many people would anyway. And I guess in the back of my mind, I did want to aspire to it. Um, I had terrible acne when I was a child. Um, You know, the pizza face look of some people. And we didn't have enough money to go to a doctor. So, you know, all I did was wash with soap and did the best that I could. I did manage But realizing that, you know, I could help other people who had similar problems that I did was was something that led me to that path. And then going to pharmacy school and learning about all the medications and the drugs. And uh, that also was another way that encouraged me to uh, try to go to medical school. Again, to me, the big lesson for my going to medical school was the ability to not limit yourself don't limit your potential and i if i could give anybody a little bit of a a boost i would say the worst thing that will happen is that you won't get in or you won't or you lose the attempt but at least try and try really hard and make it a passion and if you can't make it then maybe that means you this one door closed and there's another door that you need to open just like me i thought i wanted to be an engineer but that door closed and I found another door for whatever reason, that's where I was supposed to
0: go. Dr. Murad, that's obviously a very you know, inspirational story and uh, one that I think a lot of people can resonate with in terms of, you know, when one door closes, another opens and that, you know, we need to embrace those opportunities, right? Um, I know you eventually ended up at UCLA's uh, VA medical school or VA uh, hospital uh, for your dermatology residency. Uh, Where did you go to medical school and when did you eventually make the move to California?
1: Well, actually, I went to, um, I was born in 1939. I'm 81 years old. And I moved to California in 1962 to go to medical school. I graduated in 1966. Uh, from University of California at Irvine, UCI Medical School. Um, the one thing I could tell you about that is when I was in medical school, uh, what I aspired to be was a, um, a surgeon. I really was interested in surgery. As a matter of fact, when I finished medical school, I did my internship, rotating internship back in New York, and I had a residency to do a surgical uh, residency. But I was drafted in the army and I was sent to Vietnam. And in Vietnam, I had my fill of surgery. Um, At that time, uh, unlike what it is today, which is a volunteer army, we were all drafted. I was drafted as a a doctor and was sent to Vietnam. I was a battalion surgeon and surgery. Um, When I came back, I was assigned to my own clinic but also to the dermatology clinic in the afternoon. And at that point in life, I became interested in dermatology. Dr. Um, Murat, if you don't want to
0: talk about it, that's also, you know, very fair. But how was your experience like uh, in Vietnam, you know, working with, you know, these soldiers who were, I assume, you know, hurt and needed, you know, your services at that time?
1: Yeah, well, I was a battalion surgeon, so I got to see the injured people first. Um, at that time, the way it happened is say, uh, a soldier got injured or had a cold or whatever would go to see me at the battalion surgeon, battalion aide. That was in the boonies. That was way out, not in, the, not in the big major bases, and that's where I was. So I would see this, these people. And, you know, there were incidents that were really impactful on me, one of them that was really impactful. When I went to Vietnam, the idea was, well, we were going to stop this spread of communism and we were going to make the world peaceful and better and all kinds of things. And I thought, well, I know it's, we're all going to suffer, but the, the world will be better. And one of my very first patients was a young Certain young gentleman. He was a second lieutenant, an officer, the lowest level officer. He had finished law school, had just gotten married, and he was drafted. He came to see me because he had a cold or something like that, nothing serious. And he went out, and they brought him back within a couple of hours. Somehow we went over a landmine or something, and he was paralyzed from the neck down and you know there are numbers there are five hundred thousand people who are injured fifty thousand pill- people killed whatever the numbers are they're just huge and they don't mean anything but that one incident was very impactful for me that war is not worth it it's not there's got to be a better way and um you know i'm we always can be encouraged to to have wars and things but somehow or other Um, my mindset really, really changed. Um, It was a very impactful year. Um, I learned a lot. I grew a lot. I experienced a lot. Um, And I'm I'm grateful that I came back healthy. Uh, I'm grateful that, that I got
2: that experience, but I wish I didn't. So when you did come back, what ultimately made you want to get into dermatology?
1: Well, that's the the next story, because the first year was in Vietnam. Second year, um, I had my battalion uh, aid station where I was just a general practitioner in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I was assigned to the dermatology clinic. And um, by that time, I unlike when I was in medical school when I said dermatology was boring and not anything I would enjoy, um, I guess that experience in Vietnam turned me into enjoying uh, dermatology. <clears throat> and so I applied to um, a residency at uh, UCLA Wadsworth VA Hospital residency uh, and did my residency for three years at UCLA uh, Veterans Hospital.
2: Um, so talk to us a little bit about Sort of the the era, you know, the sixties, the seventies, even the eighties, when it came to, you know, dermatology and and um, you know, uh, paying attention to one's skin the health, of, you know, the health of their skin, the health of their body. Was it? I'm sure it was a lot different than today. But like, how how was it like? Was there even that much of a of a of a thing around then, or was it still very s- small?
1: Well, actually, dermatology then was medical dermatology. Um, And, you know, in 1966 to 1969, when I was doing my residency, we were trained in only medical dermatology, um, which was psoriasis, eczema, skin cancer, things like that. Um, And the concept of going beyond that, was, uh, was unusual. And, and there were things that um, we were, uh, at that time, it was dermatology and syphilology. So we learned a lot about syphilis and, and, uh, yeah. and diseases like that, gonorrhea, and things like that, communicable diseases. So as a dermatologist, most dermatologists went into practice and they um, were treating psoriasis, eczema, skin cancer, things like that. If a patient came to the dermatologist and said, you know, uh, my face looks haggard, I look aging, I got wrinkles, eh, don't worry, you're just getting older. And that was the end. Uh, there was no, no conversation beyond that. So that's the state of dermatology um, in the 1970s uh, when I started my practice. I tended to feel a little differently. Uh, Because when patients came in, I would always ask about them generally instead of just wanting to treat their condition. So um, over time, I had a large practice, maybe because people felt comfortable with me that I cared about them, that I was concerned about them, not their disease, because the disease was just part of them. So. Way back in in the very early 1980s, I had um, an an electrologist who worked in my medical practice. And after a while, I had an esthetician who also worked in the medical practice. So in a way, uh, in the early 1980s, I had what people would now call a medispa. At that time, also the beginning of injectables. Ah, uh, not the Botox that we talk about now, but collagen injections and the beginnings of lasers and things like that. So things were beginning to go in the uh, in the way of cosmetic dermatology uh, as well as medical dermatology.
2: when you first um launched your practice, you know, you weren't someone that inherited a practice from your, your father or mother. It was, you, it was something that you started yourself. So how did you spread the word and, and, and start getting you know, people to come to you? Like What, was, what were those early days like? Because you, you, you know, I can imagine it's just like any other business when you're starting. You have to, you have to get customers.
1: Right. Well, when I started, um, I, was, I had just finished my residency at the time. It sounds like a little, but it's not quite that little. I think I was paid like $3,600 a year. That's a long time ago, but I didn't have a lot of money. Uh, you know, we lived in a in an apartment, uh, and um, I had a, an old car. And um, to make ends meet, I would work nights uh, in an emergency room, um, part-time. I would go do insurance physicals. I'd go to people's homes and do a little physical And it was an insurance physical. I would get paid for that. And um, I decided to open up my own practice. I think it's a challenge right now. But at the time, um, it was still a challenge, but not quite what it is now. Um, I started in a very small office. It was about 400 square feet. Uh, When I first moved in, I I asked people to help me decide what I should get. So I used, I went and bought used furniture for my waiting room. I used used equipment to use in the back room. Um, I, um, I, I had my first office was very small, was maybe 400 square feet. It was before me. It was rented by a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and um, I remember the first week I had patients. What I did. I had my cards. Um, I hired um, a nurse, somebody had referred her to me. She was very sociable and very nice. And um, she knew I was starting out. I told her I can't pay you so much right now, but as soon as I grow my business, I will give you a better salary than you would be getting normally. Um, And I walked into the office and instead of just sitting there, I went all, all around the town, went to every doctor I could go to and left my cards there with the doctor. And uh, I wouldn't see the doctors. They were busy most of the time. I would talk to the nurses in the front. And if I could see the doctor, I'd say, hello, I just moved in. I'm a dermatologist, this and that. And um, I remember my very first patient, I was sitting there. I didn't even have a sign on my door. It was that beginning. And um, this was my second or third day, and I had just come back from doing my rounds, seeing other doctors, and this person walked in, he had a rash, and it had no sign. I don't know how he ended up with me, but so I said, oh, I really have my first patient. And um, I remember in the beginning, um, I think it took me about two or three months where I got to a, a number. I said one day I one week I had 30 patients. So it grew from those humble beginnings to at this point I'd seen well over 50,000 different patients. Uh, my practice really flourished over time and I uh, was a very busy dermatologist. You
0: know, obviously over the years during that practice you were, you know, very well known especially in that community of, you know, skincare and Uh, you know, if I'm not mistaken, you ran the MediSpa for about 15 years or so. What are some of the biggest things that you learned during that time that eventually became, um, you know, almost or, or, or what laid the ground eventually for you starting your own product line? You know, what are some of the things that you learned from your patients, from the overall, you know, industry itself? You know, what were people suffering from and how were you able to, you know, heal them or, you know, essentially you know, prevent some of these things down the line?
1: Well, I would go back again to the 1980s, mid-1980s. Um, at that time, if you went to get skincare products, it was very simple. It was cleanse, tone, moisturize. There was nothing to treat. And if you wanted a treatment, you would have a medical treatment, you know, with the dermatologist with a prescription, maybe antibiotics, topical agents and prescriptions of different kinds um and the idea of um the word cosmeceuticals didn't come out until quite a bit later in the late 80s and that the first cosmeceutical was called Retin-A but Retin-A really wasn't a cosmeceutical because a cosmeceutical means a pharm- a a cosmetic that acts like a pharmaceutical so um in the beginning, I used to compound prescriptions for my patients. So they would come in and they would have uh, different issues and there was nothing quite available. So instead of um, writing a prescription that was available that wouldn't be good enough, maybe, I would ask because of my background in pharmacy, I would com- write a compounded prescription. They would go to the pharmacist and get it filled. I became involved in what I think is the first cosmeceutical, which is uh, glycolic acid, alpha hydroxy acids. And I started using those on my patients. Um, I actually worked with people and uh, offered my patients um, these uh, glycolic acid-based products that were having enormous benefits on my patients. So, um, the ones that worked the best were ones that were helping with acne, with wrinkles, with pigmentation. And um, so I decided that at, um, at that time, two things. One, before I started uh, my product line, I decided rather than just have the idea of sort of a medi spa in my medical practice, to have an outside medical um, medi spa. A real spa, so um, I opened a spa called the sense of self about 20 miles away from my medical practice uh, I didn't actually see patients there but all of the estheticians were trained by me every single one of them spent a couple of weeks following me around seeing patients knowing what skin cancers look like knowing what diseases look like things like that <clears throat> and um, formed my product line called Murad in 1989 and decided around that time that I was going to try to make that something that would be available not only to my patients, but to the world at large. So I remember during that time, I started a business. I was had no business experience. Um, I found the person who said, he knew how to start businesses, but was not really good at continuing it. I said, okay, well, I need to start a business. And he found me. Um, actually, he designed the packaging on uh, the business center was going to make. Uh, by that time, I was doing well as a, as a dermatologist, and I had some funds on my own. Um, <clears throat> and um, I I decided to go to trade shows um, where asceticians were. So I began to build a business little by little. Um, At first I had him as the only employee and he helped me get other people to help me with marketing and things like that. Eventually we hired different people and little by little uh, the business grew.
0: Um, And Dr. Mirad, you know, it's, it's, it's really refreshing to hear your story because I think a lot of people don't necessarily, you know, view doctors as business people, right? You know, I think first and foremost, you know, if even me, you know, I consider doctors, medical professionals who are there to treat and help prevent, you know, their patients from, you know, serious diseases, infections, et cetera. But it seemed like, you know, throughout your journey, you were always just thinking ahead, always, you know, Envisioning new things, trying new things, you know, and trying to innovate, right? Why do you think, or, you know, what were you motivated by and why do you think you were that way as opposed to just being a dermatologist, seeing your patients, going home, enjoying life?
1: You know what? It's, uh, it's a very good question and I don't have a very good answer. Uh, I can tell you, it goes back to when I was a child and the idea that was imbued with me was that I had limited, unlimited potential. I, I didn't limit myself. And I certainly was not a good business person because I can tell you what happened to me with the, the beginnings of my business is at some point, the person that was helping me, he said, I, you know, we didn't end up uh, helping because he, he said, I can't do any more for you and, and I can't help you. I hired different people, and I was cheated. uh, There were people that were working for me that actually, because I had no idea about finance, um, the the finance people, some of them just stole money right out of the checkbook, and and I had no idea. They gave me a, they said, here's a bill, you got to pay it. I paid it, and turned out it was a bill that ended up going to their cousin or something like that. So I had a lot of things like that going on. Uh, There were people when I had product that were, they just took it out of the warehouse and they sold it on their own. Um, I also was looking at, I guess a good word for me to tell you is the path to success comes from failure because you need to fail in order to, to succeed um, here's another really good example. I was doing quite well selling my product to salons only. I tried selling to doctors and that just didn't work for me. And then I decided, well, why do that? And why shouldn't I sell to a broader audience? And uh, somebody suggested to me, why don't you do an infomercial? The uh, infomercial gets you all out. And so I I didn't have enough money, but I borrowed on my house. I took a second on my house. And uh, and again, here, you have to be willing to risk in order to succeed. You have to be willing to put all of your energy. Uh, so I made the packaging. I did the marketing. I had People helped me do an infomercial. And I sold zero. I really was just waste of, you know, there was no money and it was a big loss. I had all kinds of products that were just sitting and, and packages and nothing. Um, <clears throat> and a couple of years later, I said, you know what? And the reason I did it, I, I made sort of a mistake because I was ahead of the curve. In that infomercial, I had two sisters, one who was doing um, skin care using my product. And the other sister was not. And the other, the one who wasn't using my product had bad skin, and she had to learn, and she learned how to use the products. She got better, <clears throat> and that was the story. But at the end, it didn't work. That wasn't right. Um, what was right was what was everybody else was doing, where people sitting around in, on a on their sofas and talking about the product and seeing before and afters. So the first one was a total failure. The second one. It was a couple of years later, and I had regained. I paid my, off my mortgage a little bit on the house. I began to have a little bit of extra money. Uh, but in order to do this, I had to really borrow more. So I borrowed again, second on my house, and I had personal loan. <clears throat> and I gave everything. If I was going to fail then, I was probably going to fail, period. And uh, that one was a huge success.
2: When you first launched, were you still practicing?
1: I was, and, and I worked my tail off. I was home maybe 100 days a year. Every single weekend, I was out doing trade shows or doing classes. Um, I remember one year I did, I, can't, I think about 16, 17 different trade shows, all across the country. And when it wasn't a trade show, it was I'd made my own little thing and invited different people to come to a class at a hotel. Um, and, um, and then I began to do a little bit of international. So um, there were many times I was gone for a while. I still also practiced. And little by little, I couldn't do both and gradually minimize my practice. But uh, still kept a little bit of a practice over time, um, but in the early yeah. days, I was practicing full time, working full time, uh, twenty hours a day
0: almost. You know, Doctor Miraud, you talk about some of those failures that you had in the early days of launching the product. Mm-hmm. What was it that kept you going after you kept failing? I know, you know, I know you mentioned, you know, these failures led to success, or you know, you have to fail in order to succeed. But what in your mind told you that you were doing something right, that you were onto something, even if, you know, the sales necessarily weren't showing that to be true? You know, what motivated you to go on?
1: Um, You know, again, it's the passion. uh, and, And when you feel that you really are onto something, it's important to really continue despite some losses. I mean, there are times when it would have been very easy to just say, you know, why the heck? Why am I doing this? I, I could relax and just see my patients and, it'd be, and it would be fine. I would, I love seeing my patients. I learned so much from them. Uh, I love seeing them. I love, and they, they love coming to see me. Um, and that would have been enough. But somehow or other, there was something in me and I, I wish I could tell you that. But I do have um, a lot of my sayings. I, I have over 600 savings, which kind of express all of these things I'm telling you about. Um, I have my own blog. It's called drhowardmurad.com If you want to look at it, we have all of those uh, insights. But I, I learned somehow or other um, from my father, who actually, he failed and he didn't go forward. He, 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 when we came back when we came to the United States he failed at the first store where my uncle helped him then he opened another one and he failed and he ended up <clears throat> he ended up actually being a hundred percent broke We moved from a big house to a little tiny apartment and he worked as a messenger in New York at that time messengers just there was no email there was no fax you had a piece of paper to deliver you just take it and send it and he worked for minimum wage and all of us worked <clears throat> and all of us worked very hard but he never complained he was always happy his favorite words were i will hope i hope you'll be older than me and happier than me he lived to be almost 100 years old and he never complained about anything he was always happy so i think what helped me there was looking at him and saying, "What's the worst thing that could happen to me? I would be stuck eating an onion sandwich, and I'd be full, and I'd have a roof over my head, and I'd have my family." So the the idea of understanding if you really want to go for something, you have to be willing to risk. I don't know how that is, but that story of my father really was. Sort of what, you know, you learn from your parents, not what they tell you, but their experience and what it was. So for me, that was it. But I would tell everybody, if you're really passionate about something, go for it. And if you fail once, try again. If you fail a second time, try again. Um, At some point, you might want to give up. But um, really, if you're really passionate and you believe in yourself, you usually could make it. Because when you're that passionate, you will find a way to be successful
2: so when you first launched Murad, the business in you know the eighties like pre e commerce pre direct to consumer, you know the only way through to consumer was through some sort of retail establishment or um I'm not even sure what other options there were, but like when you first launched, how were you getting the product to consumers like what was your sort of distribution strategy?
1: Well, you know, I didn't realize what the names were. Um, The word Omni Channel didn't exist at that time. But what I did do is I started out selling only to salons. And um, then, as I told you, instead of just that, I said, well, why shouldn't I go beyond? And I went into the infomercial business. The first one was a real failure. The second one was a real success. And what was interesting about that is, at that point in time, I'd lost most of my salon business. I remember going to seminars that I would put on, and one of the people told me, you know what, Dr. Murad, I'm not going to buy any more of your products. I said, why not? Don't you like them? Are they not good? She said, no, I love them. They're really good. But you know what? People are actually coming in and asking for them. I want to be exclusive. I don't want to be something that... other people can buy all over. So the idea that this was a trend that I sort of foresaw and I don't know why, that didn't exist at the time. And what I also did at the time is with the infomercial, I put a little coupon into the infomercial and recommended people go to a salon and get professional guidance as well as using my product. Even that there was a failure because Again, the salons didn't enjoy that. They, they didn't want something that they, other people could buy on TV. Um, <clears throat> so there were challenges up and down all
0: the way. Were there any challenges t- in selling your product that had to do with going through the FDA or in getting any of these regulatory compliance issues to get your product out there, or that's not something that you had to deal with?
1: Um, my products are cosmetics. cosmetics. Uh, classified as that, and um, so there wasn't a uh, a, a need to do that. I didn't have anything that was a prescription. Um, I had ingredients in it that were allowed by um, whatever federal regulations were.
0: And after you launch, and after this infomercial business keeps working, what are some of the things that happened along the way? I mean, it's been, what, 30, 31 years now. That you know the company has been going, and you become one of the leaders in the space. Um, what are some of the things that you learned along the way, and have you know? And what are the things that you've seen that you've done differently now than you did back when you guys first started?
1: Well, yeah, obviously, I learned a lot. Um, I, I learned uh, to skirt different things. Um, I ended up um, really um, having people. Um, that worked well and, um, you know, um, financials. Um, I had, you know, outside, uh, outside uh, people who oversaw the finances, all of those things that any business person would know. Um, <clears throat> but I had to learn that on my own. I didn't go to MBA school to get it. Um, not sure how I can answer um, your question exactly, but basically um, just learning on the way and and actually um, making my own path. I never personally looked at what other people were doing. You know, like marketing now, I know our marketing team will look at all the other brands that are selling at the different retailers that we sell to. And they'll say, "Well, this person's doing this, and this person' doing that. This seems to be selling. We should try to do this. I never in the early days or even up until more recently um, looked at what do other people do and um, made products based on what I saw with my patients and as i as I looked and thought, I said, "Well, this is something that's really interesting. I should look at that and try to do that. So um, I tried to think these were uniquely mine rather than, and I'm sure I learned from others. So I can't say I didn't. Um, uniquely mine and not just being a copycat. Because you will never, you can copy what somebody else has done, but you'll never be as good as them. When you make your own, it, it is your own. It's uniquely yours. Um, and that's that was a very important I don't know that it was a lesson that I learned or it was something that was in my in my DNA or whatever but I tended to um, make products that were not necessarily anything like other people were doing. Since that time I, oh,
2: yeah. Go ahead, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say since that time of launching the business, you know, with the rise of e-commerce and, and it becoming easier and easier to sell directly to the customer without having to go through all these different channels. Um, you've seen, or we've seen a lot of cosmetic companies come to the space, whether it's in skincare or just makeup or, or whatever it might be. Uh, and so I guess in your eyes, what like now with so many, uh, I guess, brands or just products in the space, what really sets a, a brand apart from the rest? Is it, is it what you said, like that continuous innovation and not being a copycat and really trying to figure out better ways or is there, is there, is there more than that?
1: Well, it's definitely that it's definitely uniquely and, and, and products that honestly work. It's very important. I mean, you can have products that contain this and that ingredient and say, um, this is why you, this is good for you, but if it's not helping the, the problem that you have, then it, it's not, not so good. So for us, it was very important that when we said this will help reduce the pigmentation or the appearance of the pigmentation on your skin, it would have to do that. It had to work. And we had proof of it because we took many before and after pictures. We had real people using it before. Um, We we studied. We would come up with a product concept and um, make formulas of it. Uh, We would have all the people in marketing look at it and try it on themselves. And if they were satisfied, we'd allow other people in the company to try it. Then we would have other people who not and had no experience with the company who would just were willing to be um, people who would try them and, and tell, and we could take before and after pictures. So we had proof that these free products actually did what we say they were going to do. And we could, show that so that was that was really important uh to do that
0: doctor i know you made a conscious effort to put you know your name on this product right i mean it wasn't a decision i assume that was made lightly and you were the one that was developing these products and doing the research and development etc do you still spend time you know even today in the lab uh creating and innovating and coming up with new formulas for different things or not really? I
1: I am involved, but not to the point that I used to be, obviously. And and I don't know if you know, the, uh, the brand was sold in uh, 2015 to Unilever. And so, you know, there, I'm, I'm there, I'm the founder. um, And uh, we go over the new products that are being developed and have my input into it and, had certainly my, my stamp of, you know, this is good enough and I'm happy with this. Um, not just good enough, it's got to be better than good enough. <clears throat> but the, the the passion that I have now in a way relates to the products, but it relates to it in a sense of total wellness, of understanding how any product that goes out Will be helping the whole person and not just their skin. Many years ago I developed the concept of what I call inclusive health, meaning everything is included. And the idea that skincare is health care. People don't think of the word skincare as being healthcare. They think of skincare as just getting a Botox shot or getting a laser or having this new product. But you think about it. Our skin is our largest organ, and it protects every organ in our body. When we go out in the sun, what happens to us? We get a sunburn, but we also, our skin gets red, but we also feel tired, lethargic, maybe headaches, ache. Well, what happened is our skin got damaged, and the environment damaged our skin, penetrated in the bloodstream, and affected every organ in the body. So, the idea that without proper skin care, we cannot take care of our rest of our body. The reverse is true because if your heart's not healthy, you're not going to have good circulation and your skin will be very pallid. The other thing that was very important as a concept is what I call the water principle. If you ask anybody, is your skin drier today than it was ten years ago, the answer will be yes. And the answer means, that in order, a, a concept of understanding aging, there are over 300 different theories of aging, but the final common pathway of every single one of them is we go from a stage of full hydration to less and less hydration. Our skin becomes drier and drier, thinner and thinner. So does every cell in our body. It becomes drier and drier and thinner and thinner and more sensitive to disease and aging. So the concept of the combining of understanding cellular hydration and that skincare is healthcare. is very, very near and dear to the whole philosophy of Murad in mine. And this is what I've spoken about for over 25 years. So A, what I've always recommended is what I call internal skincare. Internal skincare came out with supplements way back in 1994, uh, which helped with acne and reduce the appearance of lines and wrinkles, and improved the SPF of sunscreens, combining with using sunscreens. <clears throat> so what you ate, what you put in your body, affected your skin, but it also affected the rest of your body. In 2003, I coined the term cultural stress. Cultural stress is the stress of modern living, the rules and regulations, the digital dependency, what we're seeing today is cultural stress in spades. Cultural stress is when we sit at home, now we're COVID-19, uh, we get everything delivered. We don't go out that much. So we're sitting at home. We have this sitting disease, a sedentary lifestyle. We're binge-watching all these DV- TVs and things like that. Social media, we're sitting around um, our our sitting there encourage us to sit more and do less and less activity, which leads to chronic disease, isolation, loneliness, depression, and anxiety. I have done, um, written many papers about this concept, and the idea of understanding society is changing us, and we have to address stress in a new way. There's regular stress like a broken arm. We go to the doctor and we get it fixed. But cultural stress is constant, pervasive, and ever increasing. We have no control over how COVID 19 came about. But it's causing us to have more sedentary lifestyle, more chronic disease, more anxiety, more loneliness. And we have to deal with it. So, and also the idea of doing some exercise, again, not having the sedentary lifestyle. When you do exercise, ignoring all of the other things that happen. You also are building more fat. Fat is only ten percent water. That muscle is seventy percent water. So the more muscle you have, the more hydrated you are. So this You're concept of wellness. Right <laughs> this concept of wellness is unique to Murad, and it's based on years of my philosophy, understanding cultural stress, understanding the cellular hydration picture, and knowing, if nothing else, skincare is healthcare. And the products we're making now target certain, certain centers in your skin that encourage you to have better skin, uh, reducing the appearance of wrinkles, um, reducing pigmentation, reducing inflammatory processes on your skin.
0: What I was trying to say was that this is a very timely uh, discussion considering, obviously, the situation that all of us are in uh, and the importance of continuously trying to, reduce our stress levels, our anxiety, uh, you know, connecting with other people and trying to almost feel as normal as we possibly can by still following, you know, the stay at home guidelines, et cetera. You know, in fact, one of the things that I personally experienced when I was at my previous employer was when I had those high levels of stress and, you know, wasn't able to really work out as much as I would have liked to and eat as well as, as I would have liked to, I started developing alopecia which I had never even, you know, heard of, right? And I started just losing hair all over my beard. And as soon as I left my employer within, you know, a couple months, as my stress levels began to normalize, I saw an almost like immediate improvement, right? And that's when I started thinking about what you were talking about, which is it's not just what you put on your face and your skin. It's also what you put in your mouth and, you know, what you do on a daily basis that has, you know, an impact, right? And I think that that applies to all aspects of life and in all aspects of business even is, you know, it's not only the external, but it's also the internal, whether it's of the company, whether it's the people, right? You know, focus on both of those things. Um, So I'm really, you know, interested in kind of that discussion and delving deeper into it. Uh, But I am also curious, you brought up the point of, you know, Unilever acquiring uh, Murad in 2015. What was that experience like for you? What was the process like? Was it easy to let go of, you know, this baby that you had birthed and raised after all those years?
1: Well, first of all, I'd like just to say one more thing about this concept of cultural stress and everything else. To me, it's not new. This has been, as I say, I coined that term way back in 2003, understanding it, and it's been my passion. And if I could do anything in this world is have people truly understand it and see how we can help it. And we are targeting those stress levels Allowing you to sleep better, um, reducing your stress, things like that, with topical agents. So uh, there are agents that will help uh, calm your skin, but in the sense it's helping you in other ways. Um, as far as the uh, the sale to Unilever, um, we did not approach them; they approached us, and um, at that time. Um, was a family business. My uh, my nephew was this uh, um, the general manager. Uh, my son was in charge of product development. My daughter was in the marketing area, and uh, we were getting along really well. And I began to see the beginnings of some changes. I began to see that. Um, as a company to really uh, allow my passion, which includes this whole wellness concept, uh, which is what um, brought, I think, Unilever to Murad because they realized that this was something that was important, that that was something that they could bring to the next level that I couldn't, I was not able to at this stage of my life. And I could see that there was an opportunity to allow my mission, which is to help people live happier, healthier, more fulfilling lives in everything I do, to grow and prosper. And it would be a way to allow um, the next level, the next generation to take over. So it was a challenging thing. There were discussions in the family whether we should continue on our own or we should go forward. And at the end, I realized that to really go forward, um, it had to go, uh, you know, there's a saying, if you really love somebody, you have to love them to the point of allowing them to go to leave. And that's, in a way, not letting it leave, still involved in Murad. I go to the office every day. Of course, now with COVID-19, I'm not there every day, but I have gone every day. So um, I think it was a challenge, but I think it was the right decision.
2: Are you are you someone that like when you're out and about, or I guess like when we used to be out and about, uh, when you see someone that doesn't have good skin, are you like really bothered by that? Going back to like your first words in English, which was, let me see your hand. Is that like, <laughs> was that like a foreshadow? Like, is that something that like really, like or, or are you not that attached to it?
1: No, of course. You know, I see somebody with bad skin. I, I, I wish I could help them. Um, I, um there were experiences where in the past I would go up to somebody and, and, you know, say something about it and give them a card and say, here, let me, I can give you some samples or something like that. And over time, I, I guess, you know, it wasn't appropriate to just go up to people and tell them, you know, and they, they felt bad and maybe they didn't feel bad about their skin and I made them feel worse. So I don't do that anymore.
2: I know there was a point or a period in your life where um, you got into painting. I don't know if that's one of your paintings we see in the background there, but tell us a little bit about that and if that's something that you still do today, especially now that we're quarantined. Are you still painting?
1: Yeah. That one uh, was one of my old ones. I did that way back in 2009. Uh, yeah, I still do painting. And again, all of these things that we've been talking about uh, let like failure lead to success. Uh, allow the unique you to blossom. Um, are lessons that I've learned. So yeah. what happened to me is, <clears throat> I um, I had an eye challenge way back in two thousand and seven, um, and I um, I had a retinal detachment. So I was actually. Um, as I was experiencing it, I was in Hong Kong and uh, my eyes got blurry and uh, was on my last leg of a 14 day trip international trying to encourage business. And um, I, I was arriving on Sunday from um, Hong Kong. I called my wife before that and said, you know, my eyes aren't feeling well. Could you make an appointment with the eye doctor? And uh, so she, we, We had an eye doctor appointment on the morning of Monday. And when I went there, you know, they put the thing on your eye, what do you see, and I could read. In one eye, I could read the the E and everything else. In the other eye, I could read nothing. I said, "When are you going to put it up? And they said, oh, my gosh. So I was really desperately had a challenge where within, if I didn't have surgery within hours, I would have been blind forever in that one eye. <clears throat> fortunately i went to the best doctor got in was able to do the surgery that day um and um but the result was um, i had what's called a vitrectomy and i had to put my chin on my chest for a month so i couldn't sleep on my back i had to sleep on my on my stomach um and um i couldn't eat and so a year before that i had Taken a lesson in art and my, and that teacher said, you know, buy this equipment and this and that. And I, I did, but I knew I wasn't going to ever use it. Um, and my wife said, look, this is your opportunity. Why don't you start doing art? So, um, what I did as, um, I, I was on what's like, you've ever had a massage, you know, you put your head down in that little thing and you can look down yeah. and then your hands are free and then you're lying. So mm-hmm. oh, in a, that's what I was using. I had a TV there when I could watch TV, the, the challenge for when, that one month when I had to look down. But I started doing art. And, and there was one thing I never thought I'd be interested in, but that was that led me to doing art. And it's become a passion of mine. I have over 600 art pieces that I've created in my lifetime. and um, And also, I think it brought color into my life. Uh, it brought a little bit more passion, so it kind of went along with all the things i have just been talking about with the wellness and the
0: you know failure leads to success and things like that that we 've just been talking about and dr. Murat, speaking of colors, you know even if somebody looks at your pictures online or you know we 're looking at you right now, and you have a very eclectic mix of shirts that you wear wh- Where do you get these from
1: well it's um, i most, I have other brands, but most of my brands I use only uh, from a brand called Robert Graham. Um, and uh, there are others. So um, many other different brands that I go to, but most of mine are Robert Graham. You, uh, they have their own stores. Um, they're online like everybody else is. Um, and they're in department stores.
0: You know, when you think back on you know, what you've built and, you know, the people that you've impacted and the people that you still continue to impact, you know, do you, do you ever think that this is more than what you could have imagined? I mean, this is, I mean, this is truly incredible, right? I mean, somebody who was an immigrant then a doctor, uh, you know, went to Vietnam and then ends up, you know, healing tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And, really affecting the way that they feel about themselves, right? I mean, it's more than just, you know, your skin. It's how people, it's the first thing people see uh, when they look at somebody. So wh- how, how does that make you all feel?
1: Well, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I've been able to do this. I never imagined where I would end uh, or where I would be. Uh, but again, I think, Somehow or other, what was immune in me was that I was going to be successful. Um, and regardless of any negatives, you know, knowing my family coming from relative wealth in Iraq, to being broke where we had barely enough to eat, um, <clears throat> to um, my father still being happy when, even despite that, that he just made the best of what he had available. So the the ability to to not fear failure. Fear of failure leads to failure is one of my favorite sayings as well. And uh, when we're afraid to fail, then we will fail. So yes, but I never dreamed it would be this. And I am so fortunate. Uh, And the only thing I can hope for is because of my fortunate ability that I can lead other people that I touch that have happier healthier more fulfilling lives just like I have the more they see my story I hope that will encourage them to lead in the same way whatever their passion is and sometimes we don't know what our passion is so I said I thought I wanted to be an engineer a pharmacist a lawyer I ended up a doctor I didn't know I wanted to be a Dermatologist, I wanted to be a surgeon. Didn't know I wanted to be an entrepreneur at all. I had no idea that that would be where I would end up. But we all have wonderful potential and it's up to us to make the best of it. I have a, um, and I wish I could show you, uh, but I make a, a squiggle on a piece of paper. See a big white piece of paper and a squiggle. Imagine that in your mind. And um, and then I ask people, what do you see? And the squiggle's in the middle of this white piece of paper. So if I ask you that question, and the squiggle is a squiggle, make, make up. You, you two guys, decide what a squiggle looks like, a squiggle. A worm. A worm. What's, what, do you, what else does a squiggle look like?
2: The journey of life. And it's deep. Oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you both got it right. So, most people would come up with the worm because they look at the squiggle and because they're not looking at the whole page. So, that squiggle is what you think your potential is, what your opportunity is. But that whole white space is your true potential. So, no matter what you think you can do, what you think your potential is, what you think your opportunity is, It's really not enough. It's only a minute amount of your true potential. So allow the unique you to blossom. Each one of you is uniquely different. If I give two words, forgive yourself, to 100 people, I'll get similar answers of what that means, but they're not the same. So we all see things differently. We're all uniquely different, and we all have unique potential. So. I encourage everybody that I talk to, to encourage that uniqueness that they have that nobody else in the world has. Don't try to emulate. Don't try to be like somebody else because you'll never succeed. They're the best of themselves. You're not going to be. You can be the best you. So allowing the unique you to blossom and allow passion to lead you. Make your mark on the canvas of life and let it direct you. Don't limit yourself. I love that.
2: I love that. Dr. Murad, you have an incredible story. Thank you so much for, for sharing it with us. And and you've built an incredible brand and and career and uh, we can't wait to see, you know, what you do next. Um, I don't know if there's a website where we could see your paintings, but if you do ever have a chance to put them up, let us know. And uh, we'd love to check them out.
1: Yeah, we always, I have a, a, a a daily painting and a daily um, affirmation. It's uh, Dr. Murad, uh, Look up Dr. Murad on the web on the Apple Store, and I have my own free app. So um, Dr. Murad Inspirations, I think, is what it's called, but it's Dr. Murad, and you'll see a picture, and you click on it. It's a free app, and every day there's a, a new saying and a new piece of art.
2: <laughs> Love it. Well, thank you so much. We wish you continued health, continued uh, you know prosperity and, and success, and uh, hopefully we can meet in person someday once all this stuff is over. But thanks again for being, you know, on the show and, and sharing your story with us.
0: Thanks, Doctor Mira. Thank you for
2: having me. My pleasure, my unique pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me.